This is the fourth episode of The Anatomy Cupboard. Uh, it's entitled Michelangelo's Nose. If you like these um, episodes, podcasts, perhaps you can assist us in our crowdfunding to improve their quality. Uh, you can do so at patron.podbean.com slash anatopod that's all capitals A-N-A-T-O-P-O-D and that's gratefully appreciated let's get on with it it might seem the most natural thing in the world for illustration of the dissection of the body to be a really important feature it is after all a very visual discipline a business of seeing and then doing And it's expected that every surgeon should know their way around the body. I think that's a given. But the history of dissection, particularly in the Renaissance and its immediate aftermath, was also the province of the great artists. Some, like Leonardo, kind of loved dissecting human bodies. And by the time he retired to Amboise in France under the aegis of King Francis I, He'd boasted to the secretary of the Bishop of Aragon, one Antonio de Beatus, who was visiting with an entourage, that he, that, that is Leonardo, had dissected 30 bodies in his lifetime. He obviously was pretty comfortable with the idea, although there was some opprobrium in Rome uh, that had forced him to stop dissecting there under an edict directly issued by Pope Leo X. A couple of German mirror makers working for Leonardo, who were called Despecchi, which just really means mirrors, uh, apparently, uh, what we say in Australia, dobbed him into the Pope, uh, reported him, and the Pope stopped him from dissecting. So he left uh, Rome. Uh, it's a little murky, that story. There's not a lot known about it. But there he was in Amboise, in front of the Bishop of Aragon's secretary, Debiatis, and Leonardo was so comfortable that he showed Debiatis his famous anatomy folia of drawings, and it amazed everyone in the company, for no one had seen drawings of the interior of the body of that calibre or complexity before. Now, although Leonardo stood alone in this level of skill attached to personal dissection, there were many artists who wielded the knife in the betterment of their art. The great chronicle of the most excellent painters, sculptors and architects, which was written by the artist Giorgio Vasari in 1550, waxes lyrical about one of Leonardo's teachers, Antonio Paolo Wolo, who boasted that he had skinned many bodies, and in his bronze relief, The Battle of Naked Men, that formed the basis of how a nude body should be drawn in the late 15th century, Paolo Wolo was rumoured to have played with the faces of his corpses to mimic the sort of grimaces men may have had or may have made during battle. This story was thought to have actually excited Leonardo and pushed him towards dissection. He was also pushed towards it by uh, a mentor uh, he had read, of course, who died uh, before he was born, uh, Lorenzo Ghiberti. But this story uh, was just one example of the type of individual who dissected uh, bodies to improve their art. The 
reclusive Jacopo da Pontormo, who was so shy, I suspect he was probably on the spectrum, that he slept in a loft and pulled the stepladder reaching his attic up each night so that no one could see him. He was rumoured to have kept legs and arms in a barrel so that he could sort of leisurely draw the play of muscles in different dispositions as they tugged upon the overlying skin. Other artists who we know dissected, like Michelangelo, Vincenzo Dante, Luca Signorelli, did so to learn what anatomists call the myology of the body, how the muscles work, run, pull and relax, and how they leave healthy impressions on the skin. All of this would have been to improve the complexity of their art, to enhance their sense of anatomic, artistic realism, what we might call verisimilitude. Now, even though Leonardo also dissected to improve his art, something more possessed him. He began to appreciate the cadaver for its own sake, and he dreamt and wrote about his desire to produce some great treatise on anatomy. When he was in Milan for the second time, somewhere around 1507 or 1508, he ran into the professor of anatomy at the University of Pavia, that's just a little bit south of Milan, a young man by the name of Marc Antonio della Torre, who was believed to be one of the greatest anatomists in Europe and a sort of virtual anatomical wunderkind. We don't have anything, really, that della Torre published, and if Leonardo intended to write his treatise with him, the poor fellow died of the plague at the tender age of 30. Leonardo believed that dissection would allow him to understand not just the disposition of the muscles, which we've spoken about, their myology, but also the mechanics of how they worked and how there were some muscles pulling in one direction, what we might call the agonists, and their opposite, the antagonists pulling in the other. Of course, he dissected far more than the muscles. His dissections of the eye provided an insight for him to appreciate how we see things and the structure of the retina, and from this to advance his idea through argument that vision was the supreme sense and that painting should have supremacy over the other forms of art, which included sculpture, architecture, music and even poetry. I'll get into it a little later, but Leonardo despised not only Michelangelo, but all sculptors. He thought them primitive and, quote, by him, covered in as much dust as the bakers, unquote. Of course, most people think of all the projects that Leonardo started and never finished. But if you view his progress and program of dissection, you can actually appreciate how everything that he studied was not only integrated, but also thematic. There's no doubt that he was an eccentric. People would follow him traips across town when he was painting the Last Supper on the refectory wall of the Santa Maria della Grazia for the friars just to see him sit and stare all day at the painting and to lay perhaps one light brush stroke on it and then go home. The prior became so exasperated that he couldn't finish the face of Judas. <clears throat> and he complained to the Lord Protector of Milan, Duke Lodovico Sforza, 
Leonardo told Sforza, whom they called Il Moro because of his swarthy skin, that if he preferred he could just make all the apostles' faces look just like the prior and to stop bothering him. No one never dared to speak to Sforza like that, but the ruthless leader accepted it because he appreciated the sheer genius of the artist. The rest of the populace did too in an acceptance of Leonardo's wizardry in paintings, sculpture, mechanics, armaments, bridge-building, architecture, and in scientific study and exposition, so much so that his recalcitrance, his procrastination, his perfectionism that saw him actually hand over so few finished pieces was tolerated more than it was in any other artist of his generation. Leonardo's biographer Lomazzi wrote that what others saw as wondrous in his work, Leonardo saw as incomplete and imperfect. Not to put too fine a point on it, Vasari says that all the other artists should aspire to Leonardo and to his favourite Michelangelo as mimics of nature, and that the ordinary and even the great artist could stand in awe of these two as only they were capable of surpassing nature herself. Suffice to say that at times when bodies to dissect were scarce, that there were enough artists dissecting at various times, that they, that is the artists rather than the anatomists, were on occasion the font of knowledge concerning the structure of the human body. Certainly until the finite limits of the macroscopic visible anatomy, what the anatomists call the gross anatomy, was discovered by the early 19th century, artist and anatomist had a common field of inquiry, the human body. It was shared common ground, and it was only after that a limit had been discovered that artist and anatomist actually drifted apart. Of course, the introduction of the camera, or its predecessor, the daguerreotype in the 1840s, meant that that verisimilitude of which I've spoken, that accuracy, that precision of the anatomical drawing, could be surpassed by a bit of photorealism, and the artist, the medical artist, sort of lost a little cachet. It was, however, never as predictably bad as the artist Paul de la Roche had exclaimed on seeing his first daguerreotype that from then on, as he put it, quote, painting is dead, unquote. Artists and medical artists included still had plenty to say in the age of photography and later on in the age of the X-ray, which was introduced in 1895 by Wilhelm Röntgen. Leonardo's popularity also extended to his looks, which were reported to be highly beautiful, even into old age. He was supposedly an astoundingly good-looking man, sort of the Renaissance version of George Clooney. And notwithstanding his reputation for a predilection for the young male sitters, the body dimensions of whom he spent hours measuring at his villa, the Corte Vecchia, and all of the rumours of his homosexual tendencies, the images of Leonardo as an old man with the contemplative expression of a polymath, the long flowing beard, the compassionate intelligent eyes, and the same sort of pictures that many other artists executed to show the common folk their impressions of how they imagined the face of God. Now, 
you can contrast this with the younger, irascible Michelangelo. Pretty well everyone who worked with Michelangelo found him difficult. He wasn't an effet dandy like Leonardo, who used to wander around greeting his adoring crowds in purple regalia, <coughs> often playing a lute he had personally designed and made, singing his own compositions, and in some reports releasing caged white doves into the main piazza in Florence. Michelangelo was nothing like that. For a start, he was dirty, often wearing the same dogskin breeches for months without bathing. He was bombastic, and although likely another uneducated, not a scholar of the arts. He didn't go around suggesting that he was about to write great treatises on sculpting. He left that sort of thing up to his pupils, like Ascanio Condivi, who devoted his life to a biography of his master after realising that he, that is Condivi, wasn't a particularly accomplished artist. Bishop Figiovanni of Florence said of Michelangelo that, quote, the patience of Job would not be enough to work for a single day with the man, unquote. And on more than one occasion, Michelangelo had angered the Pope so much that he was forced to flee the city and on one other occasion to be secreted in the tunnels under the city in hiding. The only thing one might say about Michelangelo is that he had at least some insight into his condition, calling his temper his terribilita. But that's not to suggest that Michelangelo was quite the, the boor Leonardo thought he was, and Michelangelo composed many beautiful and intricate poems. But he used a section for different purpose than Leonardo, and he was pretty clueless about the workings of the body. Even when he received as a gift, if you will, the body of a young Moorish boy and proceeded to dissect it to its fullest extent in front of his disciple, Condivi, pointing out all of the anatomy in detail to an extent Condivi thought equivalent to anatomical experts, dissection was no great love for Michelangelo. Now, there are some quotes saying that dissection gave him great pleasure, but there were others to whom he privately confessed that it made him sick to his stomach and that after a dissection he couldn't eat for days. Contrast that with one anecdote having Michelangelo raiding a local sepulchre in search of a body to dissect, only to find the corpse of a member of the Corsini family whom he personally knew, and then callously recounting the story to one of the dead Corsini's relatives. Not a brilliant idea. Naturally, the Corsini were a little bit upset by this, and when the family formally complained en masse about uh, this behaviour by Michelangelo to the head honcho of Florence, the gonfaloniere, uh, a man called Piero Sordorini, who under the Medici virtually ran the town, Michelangelo found himself summoned to the gonfaloniere's offices. Now, as Condivi recounts it, after Michelangelo, Michelangelo told his side of it in a rather jocular way to Sordorini, the story sounded so amusing that both men left the Hall of the 500, holding their sides in uncontrollable laughter. You know, another podcast might be worth it just discussing the pranksterism that dissection has provoked in the past, the sort of shameful antics of a male-dominated world, what's being described as the homosocial behaviour of dissectors that revolves around misogyny, drinking, cigar smoking, and that aberrant part of culture that infuses the cadaver into the centre of some sorts of camaraderie. Yeah, I, th I think I'll do that.
Well, by contrast to the features of Leonardo, self-portraits and other portraits of Michelangelo show the great deformity of his nose. It isn't surprising that it got smashed up in a fight, given his personality. But the thing that got Michelangelo excited was an argument over art. One day he was doing what students of art did, hanging around the great Brancacci Chapel, which is an alcove in the Santa Maria del Carmina church in Florence. The task for any student of art in those days was to sit at the foot of this chapel and copy the great frescoes which were made in the early 1400s by um, Masaccio. Masaccio's Trinity, for example, which is not uh, in this church, but it's across town at the Santa Maria Novella, near the train station, is one of the masterpieces of perspective containing three different dimensions for the realm of God above, Christ in the middle, and the skeleton, likely that of Adam below. Each of these segments of the painting are offset from one another, and yet each is integrated. The dome of the church in that painting is so beautifully foreshortened that you feel like you can just reach out and touch it. But my point about bringing this up is that the skeleton is probably the first Renaissance rendering of a human skeleton that is realistic. Now, sure, it's missing some ribs and a breastbone, the sternum, but it was said to be the great inspiration for anatomists to go off and dissect the body. It was, if you like, an anatomist's point of pilgrimage. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. That was the Masaccio which we're interested in. But he'd also made some paintings or some frescoes for the Brancacci Chapel. And to return there, of all the frescoes there, perhaps for me the greatest is the banishment of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden in shame. One hand over their faces, another in a kind of pudendal modesty. Eve, if you ever see that painting or that fresco, has a look of anguish on her face painted by this great, great master a look of such agony that when you get close to it, you can almost hear her screaming. So anyway, some students are there sketching, and in walks a boorish sculptor, one Pietro Torrigiani, who proceeds to make fun of them. And uh, Michelangelo takes such an offence that naturally the whole thing breaks out into a fight. And according to the great ceramic artist uh, Benvenuto Cellini, who writes of this incident in a wonderful autobiography. Torrigiani describes in graphic and excited detail how he could feel and even hear the crunch of the cartilage and bone of Michelangelo's face buckle under his fist. Torrigiani also proudly declared um, how happy he was to appreciate that Michelangelo would carry the visible reminders of this encounter for the rest of his life. Now, Michelangelo, to his credit, never did forget and celebrated his deformity as a kind of visible point of difference with his nemesis, Leonardo. As for Torrigiani, he soon left for Spain, an artist with possibly a worse temper than Michelangelo. Torrigiani ends up at the Spanish court, and in a rash decision in a very Catholic country, he destroys the sculpture of the Virgin that he'd been working on, uh, but with which he was dissatisfied. Well, naturally, the Inquisition is soon enough called in to investigate, and like many inquisitorial investigations, Torrigiani finds himself imprisoned and, who knows, even tortured. It's all sketchy after that, except to find that either Torrigiani commits suicide or starves to death. You can take your pick. There are a lot of the record of so-called auto-de-fe of the Inquisition, that record of their trials. 
who never made it to a tribunal. So let's get back to our story anyway. By comparison, talking about Leonardo and Michelangelo, Leonardo stands aloof, a private man shrouded in not a little mystery, even though we all think we know something about him. There are maybe only 15 or 17 paintings of his left in the world, some in various states of disrepair. He carried his Mona Lisa with him throughout his travels, adding over decades his touch-ups, his pentimenti, as they are called in the art world, to the curl of her hair, to the surreal backdrop of the painting, and mostly to her enigmatic lips that have received so much of our attention. He was chasing an unattainable ideal, and in that chase he invented new forms of art, the sfumato that blurs the edges of objects and that changes their colour with distance, or his chiaroscuro, which launches that difference between dark and light and where some of his work actually illuminates more by his treatment of shadows than by anything objectively displayed through the patterns of falling light. Painter, sculptor, architect, engineer, scientist, you can take your pick. But a man of whom the art critic Walter Pater wrote, who possessed, quote, some unsanctified and secret wisdom, unquote. But let's not get overexcited. Leonardo was, after all, a man of his time, and he couldn't transcend it. He doesn't rise above his medieval origins in the way someone like Sir Isaac Newton soared beyond his Baroque circumstances, or Albert Einstein flew far above his fin de siècle peers. The scientist historian George Sarton wrote of Leonardo that his, quote, originality was due not only to his inherent genius, to the penetration and comprehensiveness of his mind, but also to his ignorance, unquote. It's a great quote. But in his haze of cosmic misunderstanding, how blissful to be so ignorant. The space occupied by Michelangelo is somewhat different. A profoundly spiritual man. It's not inconceivable that he feared unbridled dissection as some sort of new doorway to atheism. The more that man discovered, the less room there was for God. It wasn't an uncommon fear in the Renaissance dissecting halls, and such a view could only come from a position of ignorance. Later, a related accusation would be levelled at the philosopher René Descartes, who in his functional comparison between the underlying structure of the human body and the workings of a complicated watch, had left in the minds of some perhaps too little room for a watchmaker. Caught up in the optical paradigms of colour and light that he had created, Leonardo's anatomical imagery seems to have been produced more for his own edification than anything else, and he was not the sort of man to share. Michelangelo, however, dubbed by the people as Il Divino, shared the common conceits and frailties of ordinary folk. But with his dissections, he used anatomy as a democratising force. No less touched than Leonardo by a divine grace, the sculpted products that profited by Michelangelo's dissections of the corpse were meant to be tactile encounters designed for the masses. They were very different men. To finish, it's a remarkable thing, though, to contemplate what Leonardo and Michelangelo could have achieved together. How could their art, one in painting, the other more in sculpture, have used a combined anatomical knowledge 
gain from their dissections of the human body to create a visual, almost divine perfection. The two men briefly worked side by side in that hall of the 500 which I mentioned, Leonardo on his battle among Yari and Michelangelo on the other wall on the Battle of Cascina. Pope Julius II soon called Michelangelo to Rome, so the 1364 Battle of Cascina, which depicted the victorious Florentine army bathing in the river Arno and surprised by the Pisans, was never painted. Leonardo on the other wall had made cartoons for his battle, which showed again another Florentine victory, this time over the Milanese in 1440, where there was only actually one casualty of a hapless man who fell off his horse. Leonardo had interminable problems keeping his oils from running on the plaster wall, and the cartoon fell off, tearing into pieces. Vasari, though, writes that he regarded the painting as the finest war piece ever made, but who knows where it's disappeared to. This commission of Florentine military victories over the lesser city-states can, I guess, be a little overdone. Apropos of that, whenever you walk through Paris, I, I can't help thinking that the French are perhaps the best at so gloriously celebrating their defeats in sculpture. Perhaps that's a little harsh. But knowing that there was just that one time when Leonardo and Michelangelo worked so closely in proximity, cheek by jowl, as it were, it beggars belief what art they could have produced together had they been able to stand one.